You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This segment is made possible by an educational grant from Shire Pharmaceuticals. Welcome to Updates from the Mayo Clinic, focusing on primary care pediatrics and child mental health. Here's your host, Dr. Peter S. Jensen, a childhood and adolescent psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. This is Dr. Peter Jensen, and I am your host with the Mayo Clinic series, Mental Health Management in Primary Care. And with me today is a very uh, a good friend and distinguished colleague, Dr. Mark Fry. Mark Fry is the professor of uh, psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology here at Mayo Clinic, and uh, uh, the uh, chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology. Mark, welcome. Thank you, Peter. Mark, uh, uh, I have had the great pleasure to get to know through uh, Mark's leadership and development of an international team of scientists uh, working on the development of a pediat- or of a, an adult bipolar biobank that now also includes children. So with my several hats here at Mayo working for Mark in the department, I've also had the pleasure to work with Mark on this, uh, on this biobank. Mark, you know, um, bipolar disorder is kind of a mysterious term, perhaps, for many primary care providers. And I wonder if you could start us off by, by helping us really understand what bipolar disorder is exactly. Is this all uh, much ado about nothing, or is this something for real that we need to know about? Uh, thank you, Peter. I would definitely say it's much to do about something. Um, you know, my, my guess is that the, the new primary care providers or the younger primary care providers recognize the term for what it is, um, uh, significant uh, mood swings, and, and it is one of the most common mood disorders that we see in clinical practice and specifically in primary care. Some of the older colleagues uh, might remember the... Um, older term that was referred to, and that was manic depressive illness. And I, I bring that forward to discussion just because I think it's a little more descriptive as to what we're really getting at. We're, we're focused on uh, recurrent uh, mood episodes uh, and, and the, the uniqueness, what, dis, what distinguishes bipolar disorder from unipolar disorder is, in fact, the manic bipolar type 1 or the hypomanic bipolar type 2 episode. So when you say bipolar, those two poles, it sounds like we're talking about generally a patient who has episodes uh, that, uh, uh, and at times vacillation between the depressive uh, uh, period and then the, the mania or hypomania periods. That's exactly right, and, and there's a lot of research right now being done to better understand both the you know both the diagnostic criteria, but even the underlying uh, biology of that vacillation. But um, the the bipolar really refers to mania or milder forms hypomania with separate episodes of of depression. Now, is a is a primary care provider likely to see this in practice? And if so, what would such a patient look like? Well, this is why I just want to, to really recognize and congratulate ReachMD for moving forward with uh, this type of continuing professional development course. Uh, the answer to that is yes. When uh, primary care providers have a better understanding of what to look for, they are indeed going to, to find this. And not surprisingly, in their very young patients, even adolescents or young adults, 
I think the challenge is this is not um, a simple, discrete, classic manic episode, and, and hence the diagnosis is made. Um, what makes bipolar disorder very challenging is that the the way it evolves or the way it unfolds can be very different for uh, patients and, and very different by age group. I think the thing that uh, I think is most relevant is the field has recognized the importance of primary care providers needing more tools to, to uh, feel like they're better able to look for bipolar disorder. And there are a number of screening instruments that are available, but I think the one that's been used a lot that we've had uh, good experience here uh, in our depression center at Mayo Clinic is the Mood Disorder Questionnaire. This was developed by uh, Bob Hirschfeld, gosh, close to now, um, 10, 12 years ago, and, and it can be downloaded for free at a great website for bipolar disorder. That's www.dbsalliance.org. It's just asking about a set of questions, um, and these questions are really geared at uh, symptoms of mania, hypomania. So it's a great screening tool that uh, primary care clinics can use to get the discussion started. And I, and I guess the last point that I would make is these screening questionnaires, there's a number of them that are now being developed. We have to reference their limitations. These are not diagnostic checklists or diagnostic questionnaires. This is really a focused set of questions that a patient fills out waiting in the lobby that then helps the clinician uh, uh, get a little more granular in the types of questions they're going to be asking to confirm yes or no, a bipolar disorder is there. And so it can actually help someone who doesn't have to become a mental health uh, provider and go, act, go back to school and become a psychiatrist. Even the primary care physician can do a better job identifying with they use these kinds of checklists? Exactly. And if they've got you know, a, what we call a positive score, which is answering seven of these 13 items uh, in the affirmative with a, a functional impairment measure. It just prompts more questions. And if the primary care person is uncomfortable um, going down that road, then redirecting to a mental health professional uh, would be perfectly reasonable, and there would be a really good start to the evaluation having used the mood disorder questionnaire or some such screening instrument. Well, that's a, a wonderful kind of advance that sounds very much urgently need, needed. Uh, Mark, what, what causes bipolar disorder? I mean, it's one thing to see it, but what are we going to tell the patients when they ask? Million-dollar question. In short, we just don't know. We know that we see bipolar disorder throughout the globe. doesn't matter if you live in Australia, Minnesota, Japan, uh, Chile. Um, mania is mania. We know that there is an underlying neurobiology uh, in brain regions that are linked to mood and to energy and, and to impulsivity, but the exact cause is not known. We know it's genetic. We know we can see uh, uh, families that have clusters of bipolar disorder, and, and that's one of the reasons you and I are moving forward with our collaborative uh, biobanking project. But uh, the exact cause, we just don't know yet. How do you treat it now if we do state-of-the-art? And do these treatments really work? You know, I think the first approach here really has got to be educating um, the patient, uh, their significant others, their families about uh, the, the illness, 
the, the symptoms and the criteria that we look for. I would love to have a day in the future where we could have a blood draw that says you've got bipolar disorder or you know, maybe a brain scan that says you need, to, you need to be on lithium or you definitely should not get an antidepressant. We're just not there yet. So the, the main focus now is a good clinical comprehensive assessment really focused on these types of symptoms and criteria. And by and large, um, for patients who are in the midst of an episode, whether it's mania or depression, we generally try to focus on mood-stabilizing treatments first. And those, many people will recognize lithium. It's been around for 30, 40 years. It can be a very helpful medicine for some patients. But the reality is, is that the majority of patients uh, oftentimes will need other types of mood-stabilizing treatments. Well, I would say over the last, uh, when I kind of look at my career these last uh, 15 to 20 years, there has been a substantial advance and, and some of this uh, with some preclinical research uh, helping us better understand what's going on, substantial advance with what we call mood-stabilizing anticonvulsants, such as divoproxodium, lamotrigine, carbamazepine. These can be good medications for bipolar disorder. They can be good medications when bipolar disorder has additional medical problems, such as migraines or alcoholism, which we know can be highly prevalent in bipolar patient groups. I think the second uh, greatest substantial ad advance in our, in, our, in our pharmacopoeia, our toolbox, if you will, has been the atypical antipsychotics. And, and these are medicines such as risperidone, quetiapine, eripiprazole, ciprazidone, olanzapine, lorazidone, um, acenapine, I think I'm getting all of them. They're, they're, it's, it's a general class. Clozapine is another, but it does not have a specific FDA approval. But these, these medicines um, we uh, refer to as mood stabilizers. They're not antidepressants. Um, they're not um, uh, benzodiazepines or minor tranquilizers. We think there's something unique about their, uh, their ability to stabilize patients with bipolar disorder. So, Mark, you mentioned something very interesting. In that first-class uh, group of medicines you mentioned, it sounds like they're all actually anticonvulsants, and yet they seem to stabilize the mood. And then the second group you mentioned, uh, you called antipsychotics, and they also stabilize the mood. Do you use them both or one or the other? I mean, how do you decide out of so many medicines? No, that's a great question of, you know, with this set of treatments that we have, are there... Are there patterns of, of bipolar illness or the way that someone might present to a primary care provider that would have you lean towards one medicine versus another? You know, in short, we don't have the largest evidence or clinical data sets to help us answer this question, but there are some impressions. Uh, the beauty of lithium is when we've had a medicine around for 35, 40 years, we know who does well with that treatment. And there are patterns of bipolar disorder that we know can be very lithium responsive. So euphoric mania, when there's the absence of depression or substance use or rapid cycling, that is a very lithium responsive presentation. We know that there is a distinct advantage with lithium response rates when we are intervening early. And by that I mean 
you know, intervening when someone's in the midst of their first or second or third episode of bipolar disorder as opposed to their eighth, ninth, or tenth. That's what's so, in my mind, so critical for primary care providers, pediatricians, and child psychiatrists to recognize is we know this illness can, for some, develop in adolescence, and getting the right diagnosis to the right teenager at the right time can really help us change or increase the likelihood that an intervention like lithium would be very helpful. The antipsychotics and the anticonvulsants initially really were studied in patients who were lithium failures. So early, and by that I mean sort of the 90s and early 2000s, there was a general sense that these medicines were helping people who did not respond to lithium. You know, there's a um, th- these these medicines have been so helpful that many people people now are going to the anticonvulsants or the antipsychotics before lithium. So I kind of highlighted before when I see a patient, you know, in the depression center here at Mayo Clinic, if there's a bipolar condition and maybe there's an alcohol problem or a migraine headache comorbidity, this is actually where some of the mood-stabilizing anticonvulsant medicines can be quite helpful because they can work for both. So if we think about FDA indications, divaproxodium is FDA-approved for, for bipolar disorder and for migraine prevention, as an example. The antipsychotics, I think the point um, that's worth referencing there is that these medicines are very helpful. Um, they can help bipolar disorder even when there are not psychotic symptoms present. So this is where kind of the um, the class labeling that we have may in fact be a little antiquated, frankly. It's important to emphasize that, you know, um, no medicine is without a side effect, and it's important to recognize what those are for each one of these medicines and have our patients understand from an informed consent perspective why we're choosing a medicine, how we're going to monitor for side effects, and, and understand the risks um, that might be involved with a particular treatment. We've been listening to Dr. Mark Fry, chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology at Mayo Clinic and professor of psychiatry. Uh, on the topic of adult bipolar disorder, I'm your host, Dr. Peter Jensen, and you've been listening to Reach MD and this special Mayo Clinic series for medical professionals on mental health management in primary care. Thank you for listening and tune in again. Thank you for listening to updates from the Mayo Clinic. And thank you to Shire Pharmaceuticals, whose educational grant makes this program possible. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show and many others, or to download this segment, go to reachmd.com forward slash Mayo Clinic.